Welcome to episode six of Teachers Lift. In this episode, we're lucky to have two leaders in the field of teaching and learning in Hong Kong higher education. We also continue with our effort to promote interinstitutional collaboration by welcoming Sean McMinn as a host from the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Sean is joined by Aditi, and they talk about a topic that's near and dear to us at Teachers Lift. We formed this podcast as a platform to share our practice and promote collegial exchanges, so it's gratifying to see the topic of communities of practice being discussed. Let's turn it over to Sean and Aditi as they talk to Nick and Graham. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, today we have two distinguished guests uh, joining us to talk a lot about the current situation that I think everyone throughout the world is experiencing. Uh, and they come from uh, backgrounds and expertise that I think is highly relevant uh, to us. We have our guests, um, Graham Bilbo, the director of the Center for the Enhancement of Teaching and Learning at the Hong Kong University, and Nick Noakes, uh, associate director for the Center for Educational Innovation at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Thank you, uh, both of you, for joining us today to uh, talk about your expertise, your experiences, and to help us get a little bit of advice on what we can do as a community to uh, work things through in this yes. new world. I'd like to thank uh, Nick and Graham as well for being here today. And um, I know you're both very, very busy and you still made the time to come here. We are really grateful. You're more than welcome. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I feel almost as if I'm returning to a community that I was part of for many years, which is the community of English language teachers. Of course, I've I moved away from English language teaching a few years ago, but I'm delighted to be back. That's actually something we we uh, want to touch upon. We know both of you have a similar background in English language teaching, uh, and I believe you both have worked together in the past. Uh, and coming up with the idea of communities, uh, we'll, we'll lead into that later, but I'm curious, how has your work over the years, both what you know of each other uh, and your experiences in ELT, how has that evolved and uh into what you're doing today uh do you want to start nick or shall i i don't mind uh i've known nick for about 30 years um we worked together when we both worked at the british council in wan chai uh i started in 1989 and i think i think nick started before me uh and so uh we got to know each other quite well then uh, and I think we've both moved on to broader remits within higher education. Um, so, uh, so I left Hong Kong in 2005. I took early retirement and went to become a dean in uh, the Middle East at the higher uh, colleges of technology, where I was responsible not just for English, but also maths, uh, Arabic, computing, the basic requirements for the university. Uh, and then I moved kind of back into teaching English. I was director of English uh, for China for the British Council for a few years. And then after that, I switched over into higher education proper uh, and uh, became an assistant director at the Higher Education Academy in the UK. And then it, it, with a sort of circularity about it, came back to Hong Kong 
to be director for teaching and learning at the University of Hong Kong. So life is a whole set of sort of Venn diagrams and, <laughs> and people and places and activities. So it's been a very exciting, you know, half a life. That's exciting. Yes. And uh, what about Nick? Uh, well, so I, I came to Hong Kong in, uh, and worked for the British Council at the end of, I think it was 80, 83 or 84 when I was in the British Council. And uh, when I was working there, obviously I worked with Graham and I worked together for a, a, a while too. Uh, but when I was there, I was also doing teacher development. So I used to train uh, the English language teachers who were on what was then called, I think, the RSA certificate. It changed its name later on, but uh, and, and then later on the diploma. But I left uh, Hong Kong, went was still the British Council, went to work in Thailand for a, a couple of years, and then I came back to Hong Kong in 94, but I came back and came to this institution, to the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. So, but I was, when I first came here, I was back here in, uh, actually in the language center for about six years, I think. And then a bit like Graham, I transferred completely out of that. And I went into what was then called the Center for Enhanced Learning and Teaching, a very similar name to Graham's center right now. Yeah. Uh the thing that probably uh, got me interested in moving into broader teaching and learning in higher education was being a head of a department. So I was head of the English department at the Poly U for many years. And I think when you look at things from a management perspective, you tend to think uh, in bigger terms uh, than simply within your own discipline. So you look for parallels in other disciplines. And, and, and so that was, you know, that experience was uh, was very useful and also in Abu Dhabi uh, working with multiple colleges we were a network of 14 colleges dispersed across the Arab Emirates mm. uh, working across those different contexts and colleges uh, led me to think that networking was a really important part of uh, having a joint mission so you had to think very much about what the perspectives were of people in different disciplines and in different places. And I think that actually is useful for me now in the work that I do across disciplines at the University of Hong Kong, and especially now that we've moved on to uh, online teaching and learning. Sure, brings me to another question, which is probably something that a lot of us young well, not really young, but aspiring academics might want to know, which is that both of you have had so much experience and uh, you've been given increasingly more responsibilities. So what is, the, what is the reason behind your success? Is it wanting to do different things and, and saying, okay, I, I'll take this up as well, I'll take this up as well, uh, varied experiences, um, you know. Uh, what is it that has made you rise this high in this uh, profession. Oh, well, Nick, I defer <laughs> to you. A, I don't think I've risen high, <laughs> so that's one thing. Um, Higher than that, that, That's definitely not something I think about at all, but um, I, th I think a lot of it is, is luck. When I first came to UST, uh, I'd never had email before, believe it or not, and then within the first few months of being here, I was actually working with teachers all around the world. So uh, we did something that was in language teaching, which was called a MOO. I don't know if you've ever heard of that multi-user object oriented. They came out of MUD. So this was like a, a text-based virtual environment, basically. 
we're going way yeah, back. Yeah, so this was, this was late 94. This was when the, the internet was just taking off commercially. So, uh, but the people I, I was working with were all over the world. The, the, most of them were in the States. But, uh, and that was my sort of first introduction, really, I guess, to sort of like online communities too. So that's when I started the group of language teachers. And we worked together for training other teachers and, and having students online. Uh, and we didn't get to meet, I didn't get to meet them f in person until I think it was like six years later at a, at a TESOL conference in, in New York State and uh, in Manhattan. And uh, that was fantastic because to be truthful, it made me realize how much we sort of knew each other, even though we'd never actually met. So uh, it made me very aware of sort of online communities and how, um, how close they can be in a way. So it sort of set me up, I think, for for doing online learning in a way too. So I actually did it. my second master's degree was actually in something called networked collaborative learning. So, and that was built around a community of practice for the, for the actual cohort that was doing the degree. So uh, it, it was really a, a lot of fun, but it opened my eyes, right? From going from no, no internet, no email, nothing to, to having that within two months of, of being at UST it was quite dramatic. Uh, for, for me, uh, I would start with the preface that Nick started with, which is I don't consider that all those nice things you said are necessarily true. I, I think I've had, a, uh, and, I, and I'm sure I speak for Nick too, uh, that we've mm. had interesting lives and we've been in interesting places and we've faced interesting challenges. Uh, and I think that's partly because, I don't know about Nick, but for myself, I grew up um, being encouraged by my parents to embrace uncertainty and to always say yes, never say no, don't close things down, don't say I haven't got the skills, but embrace it, wing it, get the skills, qualify it and move mm -hmm. on. So to me, uh, if I were to really have the temerity to offer any advice to a young member of staff, it would be never say no. Always look at the positive, look at the opportunities. And I, I would say that that's a really important attribute in today's situation where people have to make the best of it. Uh, you can close your eyes to what's happening. You can attempt to carry on as usual, but you'll not succeed. So the ability to be flexible, to tackle uncertainty, in fact, to embrace uncertainty, I think has been essential to my life. So I look back at particular times when I made decisions, which at the time people said, you must be crazy, but which turned out to be right. Mm -hmm. The first was when I decided to come mm -hmm. to Hong Kong uh, just after Tiananmen Square. People said, you must be crazy. The second thing was when I took retirement in 2005, and went to the Middle East, people said, you must be crazy. To become a dean when you haven't had any experience of being a dean, mm. you must be crazy. And then return, going to the UK to work with the higher education in being responsible for arts and humanities across all the universities in the UK. Other people said, who do you think you are that you think you have something to contribute to disciplines as broad as religion, philosophy, languages, uh, media, arts, performing arts. You know, who do you think you are that you think you have something to say to 
people across those disciplines. And I think a sense of self-belief is really important. So the, the message that I'm get, getting from both of you is that testing times um, or these momentous times, whether they are negative or positive, the, the internet revolution, the pandemic right now, these are times when innovation can take place, where we can um, offer new ideas and try out new things. Um, and how do you think at this time we can use this opportunity to experiment with new ways of teaching and learning and also regarding English language learning and teaching? Yeah, I think that these are excellent points, Aditi, and I, I like to add, to add to that a couple of elements, and that is uh, the concepts of network learning and communities of practice, which both of you have mentioned. Uh, how, how can this inform us? I mean, right now we're in a time of uh, being quite isolated and quarantine ourselves in our individual little rooms or houses or apartments. And community is now even more important, more than ever. Yeah. So how do we make yeah. use of this? Nick, do you want that? Go, no, go ahead, Graham, you've got something. <laughs> well, no, I don't want to be too talkative. No, we want you to be. <laughs> we want to hear from both but, of you here, yeah. I, I think the point, one point is that the UGC elected uh, many years ago now, I can't even remember when it was, I think it may have been about 2010, 11, something like mm -hmm. that, to fund the creation of communities of practice across all eight institutions in Hong Kong. That was a wonderful catalyst to get universities to think about what it means to be a network, uh, to think about what it means to talk the same language to have a shared task, all, all those kinds of questions. So I think that was a really important thing. But of course, in customary fashion, every university did things differently. Mm. But that's also good because that means we have a wealth of experience in doing slightly different things. Um, my biggest uh, lesson from communities of practice that we've been uh, involved in is not to believe that a center for teaching and learning knows everything. That has been crucial. Uh, traditionally, a center for teaching and learning has a, a kind of instructional role within an institution. We train the young teachers and so on. Usually there's also a professional development function mm -hmm. where we run workshops and so on. But what there hasn't been traditionally in universities is a uh, a sense of we're all in this together. So you'll have workshops sharing good practice. You'll have courses teaching good practice. But traditionally, we don't look within the institution and say, where do we find good practice within the institution? Once you start doing that, you start to find it, and then you can share it, and then you can celebrate it. And then it can, instead of being an emergent practice, it can become a good practice. So actually there's huge development opportunities within institutions, and I suppose across, through communities to share good practice mm. and make it public. So public transparency, uh, ability for people to share their ideas, critique their ideas, these are all important. And publish. publish. The, Traditional problem, uh, a traditional problem within the universities is that academics only publish in their discipline. So they may be an engineer, they're a scientist or whatever, but they would think it was highly immodest to publish in teaching and learning. Mm. 
They would not feel comfortable. So what communities of practice allow is for those people to get validation in terms of their teaching and learning so that they can publish in some form. It doesn't have to be in a learned journal. It can be on a website or whatever, but they can get recognition from other people yeah. and a kind of uh, a validation from other people. I think that's really important. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. No, I'm sorry. I'd like to follow up on a couple of things that you said there. I mean, Nick, uh, you and I, we've had conversations about communities of practice in the past at HKUST. And one of the things that I've sometimes commented on is that they're very difficult to create artificially. And quite often they work better organically. Uh, and, and another issue, touching on Graham, what you said, is um, uh, trying to get faculty members from disciplines to publish in teaching and learning is a struggle. And also within our own profession in ELT, they tend to be practitioners, not researchers. And scholarship is a very difficult thing to get them involved in. Uh, I think what you're saying is that scholarly work is important in a community of practice in that sense. How do we address both of these issues? I mean, Nick or, or Graham, both of your insights would be very useful in that. I think Graham just said one thing though before about the fact that right now in the, in the current context, you've got a, a very uh, sort of common shared need, right? When we've all had to go online yeah. very, very quickly. So, you know, from last November really. So, uh, I, I think that's sort of probably is a, a bit unusual in the sense of that need is so common and, and right across the faculty board, right? Uh, whether it be English language uh, teaching or, or humanities or, or engineering or whatever. So that's a sort of uh, a, a key element, right, in that sense, that shared need. But Graham was also saying before about, I mean, the communities of practice, I think, for the UGC funded, I mean, of which... Teachers Lift is sort of an outcome in a sense of one of those, right, really, in a way. So, it is, um, yes. I, I think those have actually worked really well on, on the whole too because that's a group of people who perceived a shared need together. Okay, it wasn't as large as we're seeing uh, right now. And, and that's an issue, right? In, in, it's not an issue of creating a community. It's an issue of how do you sustain the community? How do you make it grow enough that the number becomes sustainable and then you've got to shift people, you've got to trans transition people from being on the periphery to a, of a community more into its central core and the central people in the core moving out of being in the core if the community is going to have some longevity uh, to it. So there's some sort of issues there that are not e easy to, to have a community stay for a long time, I, I think. But having them at the beginning is, is, is uh, like Graham said, actually, I'm sort of quite... Um, what's the word? I'm sort of quite happy in a sense the way that those communities have grown from the UGC funding and, uh, you know, the, and there were shared needs across the sector as well. So getting those people together so that now when we're in the context we've got now, you've already got people who have some people, faculty who've got used to being in those sorts of communities, both within and across their institutions. So, uh, and having that sort of base where people sort of understand what the community is about, because the other side of the community, I think, is about growing the knowledge base, which also Graham was referring to in a sense of when you're publishing, how, whether you publish in academic uh, journals or not, you're reifying the knowledge that is part of that community. You're trying to grow that knowledge base in, in the community. So it's, I mean, that sharing leads to knowledge growth. That's the idea really for it. And that's what you're seeing and why that 
publishing and that recognition is, uh, I think, also a key element of, of growing. A, a, couple of th- a couple of things on that, Nick. Um, I think another nexus, if you like, for working collaboratively was the creation of the new mm, four-year absolutely. curriculum where there was a very strong sense of a shared purpose across all the universities, even though everyone did it in a slightly different way, uh, there was a shared purpose, at least within the institution, that we were all on the same team and we were all contributing to the same big task. Uh, For example, creating the niche in our context, creating the niche for experiential learning, creating the niche for... Um, new forms of assessment, uh, creating the niche for a common core, a new way of handling interdisciplinarity. They were all shared purposes. And uh, so, you know, I, I agree that the, the communities of practice itself, that initiative itself was really useful. But the, for me, the most important thing is, well, what's the result of those communities of practice? In Hong Kong U, we've created effectively two big communities of practice. The first is relating to assessment and assessment for learning rather than assessment of learning. And that has become a very, if you go to our website, you can see where there's a lot of resources there for rethinking assessment and now in this situation where we're all thinking desperately about how to consider alternatives to the traditional term paper that kind of research is really useful because it means we've already started to think about new ways of assessing uh, and assessing learning and helping assessment contribute to learning so I think that's those, those are some examples of communities of practice. The other thing I would say is, and I think where we're not so strong, is involving students mm-hmm. in community of practice. I don't believe we do enough to involve students mm-hmm. in those communities of practice. And now perhaps we're reaping some kind of reward from that in the current situation vis-a-vis the protests and and so on. I think were students to be fully involved in uh, rethinking the curriculum, rethinking assessment, rethinking classroom practice, then I think maybe we'd have less issues now. That's not to suggest we're not doing things to involve students. I think we are. But I think it's been quite slow progress. So we, I just read um, an email by our Hong Kong U Vice-Chancellor, and he talked about this whole dilemma with uh, established practices, that we are entrenched in established practices, and now there are emergent practices with this new mode that we have adopted. So how do we Mm. resolve this this tension between established practices and emergent practices and still continue to have a community of practice that is coherent? The way that we are viewing that is to see emergent good and best practice as fundamentally different things Mm. and to see there being a trajectory between the first and the last i you know these things i think are connected practices change over time anyway maybe for example the lecture has had its day at one point the lecture was best practice 
It may still be good practice, but it may become a disappearing practice. Now, to look at it more positively, you can say that there are some things happening which are emergent practices, which if we fan life into them, if we encourage them, if we fund them, if we get a critical mass of people around them, then we can convert them from emergent practices to good practices through a process of institutional learning. Mm. And ultimately, if there is such a thing as best practice that would, that would go into the course content of any uh, preparatory course for teachers, for higher education, then you might consider those things best practice. And who knows, eventually, what was once emergent may become best. So I would say the answer to your question, Aditi, is to see this as a a dynamic trajectory and that the world is constantly changing and most of the time we don't really even notice it. It's only at critical times like this that we, we say, oh, well, how can we move from A to B without looking back in time and saying, well, actually, we're not at A. We're yeah. at about M. Yeah. And we've moved from A to M and, uh, you know, and we've successfully done it. The question now is how do we get from M to well, if there is an end. So at the moment, Nick and you, what are some of these emergent practices that you think will be concretized or there is a very high chance that these will take a best practice form, a more established practice form in the years to come? I would say that we're still in the process of exploring the flipped classroom, but every day that passes, the flipped classroom is becoming more normal. Yeah. I would say that's an example of something that was an emergent practice, which is probably now close to a good practice. Um, I think assessment um, for learning is an area where there are some interesting things happening at Hong Kong U, where that once would have been impossible, they became, they became emergent. A few people started to do these things. Uh, feed forward, for example. Uh, traditionally, even feedback is difficult at many universities, let alone feed forward. You got me thinking about uh, a, a past practice that was really taken seriously years ago and now it's kind of been submerged, if you want to use the emergent practice. And I'm thinking of VR or, or, or virtual reality and, and Second Life. I mean, Nick, I know you were heavily involved in Second Life as a practice for possible communities of uh, practice and also teaching and learning. Uh, is there a possibility of revisiting some of these or should we revisit some of these? Uh, well, they I mean, I don't think virtual worlds necessarily, but uh, I mean, in terms of VR and AR, that's, that's definitely still around and, and still emergent. But I, I don't know if that's sort of like, to me, the, the, the bigger thing right now. I think the bigger thing for me going forward is emergent practices will be around much more to do with things to do with like learning analytics and to do with its, mm -hmm. its scale and cost. So one of the things that we're seeing right, right now with doing online is it's making us rethink what can be done at scale and cost as well, right? Because, I mean, probably the, I don't know if you, sort of like the, what we'd really like to see is personalization for students at scale right and, and low cost that's sort of 
really like the you know sort of the ultimate goal that we'd all like to see you know because higher ed at the moment is doesn't have that much real personalization for students at, at scale it has it on a on an individual sort of course level maybe but not at scale and low cost so i think a lot of the emergent practices now and what the opportunity that we have right now is is it's making us look at scale and cost but you think about data analytics and ai and big data and that's probably got for me the biggest opportunity rather than vr and ar about go, going forward and where you know some things that we can really have some emergent practices over would be to do with those if you if you think about our uh, practice of having a proctored end term paper mm. where everyone is jammed into a room and there are essentially machine gun posts at the four corners of the room to ensure that nobody looks <laughs> around them. You might say that's a barbaric, prehistoric yes. process. It's hardly fitting for the 21st century, you might say. I wouldn't <laughs> dare say that. But, <laughs> but you might say it, it isn't responsive to the current reality. So... It so happens now, it goes back to what I said at the very beginning, which is mm. never say no and always look for the positive. We're all rethinking the end of term mm. paper and, and how we can't get mm. people into a room. So how can we do things differently? This is an opportunity, an opportunity to rethink. For example, I was talking to someone the other day and they were saying, what about, what about uh, using a PhD uh, oral model? for undergraduate students. Now this comes back to, uh, this comes back to next point about scalability, personalization, and you know, costs. Now, in some disciplines, it may be feasible to think about an oral examination. Now, admittedly, if you've got a thousand students, that's unlikely. But it, uh, and this comes back to something I said earlier, which is disciplinary differences. And the, the, the thing I've most enjoyed about my professional life uh, is that I've been exposed to disciplines as removed from each other as performing arts uh, and, uh, and modern language teaching, uh, religion, you know. And, and, and the modes of learning in those different disciplines are, are different. And one thing that I've learned is that it is possible to cross-fertilize from one discipline to another. Sometimes these species are sufficiently close together to cross-fertilize, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. So uh, in that case, in some faculties, in, to get around the problem of the proctored end-of-term exam, you could feasibly think about having 20-minute interviews with every student on the program, where you would give them a chance to speak in their own words about a particular issue that you wanted to probe. Um, I know it sounds pie in the sky, but actually when you think about the realities of it, it isn't pie in the sky. It's new, but it's not unrealistic. Right. This is very interesting and it's wonderful that we are talking about this, but at the same time, we, we want to be a community of practice. We want everyone to share the same goal, the same purpose, especially in an institution. But 
what about resistance? When we try to implement these changes or we think that this might be cross-fertilized, as you said, how often do we meet with resistance? And if we believe in something, how do we go about changing the minds of those who are resisting this? Academia has had a long history of resistance. Of course. Uh, one faculty may see itself as very different from another faculty. One staff member may feel that they're very different from another staff member. One university might think that it's completely different from another. All those things are true, but they are things that we have to fight against. We have to encourage people to develop a common purpose. We have to develop uh, faculties to see opportunities for cross-faculty learning. We have to help universities to see that they are not alone that in fact they can share with each other. And there are many things that we're doing. Nick and I have worked on uh, numerous activities which have been cross-institutional in nature. Progress is inevitably slow uh, because of the barriers, um, but communities of practice are one way in which you can try to break some of those barriers. So Nick, down. how are you doing it in Hong Kong University of Science and Technology? Do you face similar challenges? Um, yes, we do. But I think there's a, something else that you, when you talked about the sort of resistance before, I mean, there's always some resistance, but uh, I mean, and sometimes that resistance is more to do with time, time and effort and, uh, and than anything else than that, that people are really close to doing something new. But I think there's also something else to think about that's changed, that's been changing as well, which is the nature of the disciplines have been changing in the sense that the disciplines themselves the sort of boundaries to those disciplines have been breaking down. And if you look at the problems that the sort of the world faces, they, they, they require interdisciplinarity, right? They acquire people to go across disciplines and faculty in their research are now much more used to being in a research team that crosses different disciplines. So the mindset of uh, what Graham was talking about, about people learning, you know, from, from what's happened in other disciplines and, and adopting and adapting sort of practices in that way. I think people are much more open to that now because that's, you know, that's how they're dealing with their everyday work anyway, their research work, not just their teaching. Um, but the other resistance, I guess, maybe, you know, there's a resistance that will get eroded when it get pushed back from students. So Graham was talking before about the student involvement that we we sort of still, I think, have a long way to go with that. You know, there's been a movement internationally now for quite a long time called Students as Producers, which Graham is very well aware of. But we sort of also want to move that on to, right, where you've got students as co-designers of learning experiences and co-designers of curricula, not just courses, but whole, whole curricula. And I think that's what Graham was alluding to a little bit really earlier on too. So that's another way of pushing, I think, you know, in a sense, the push doesn't have to come from people like Graham and me or senior management or from department heads. The push is also coming from students. And right now, in the context that we're in right now, where everybody's going online, you know, we're getting a lot of feedback from students, which is, you know, a good thing, right? All of a sudden, you're getting a lot of feedback from colleagues, from faculty, as well as from students. And, you know, those sort of when you've got those different voices coming in to help set that direction about where we go. So, uh, Graham's point earlier about the student voice, I think, is very key in all of this. And how do we bring the student voice into that to, to sort of take away some of those resistances, if you like, because it was felt to be imposed, I think, top down from management rather than bottom up. This is, this is Ultimately, it's, I think it's to do with empowerment. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. We're talking about empowering students. But, yeah. but just as important is empowering academics. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, people like Nick and I, you know, as, as directors of centres, we've always been empowered to impose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've always been empowered to pontificate. Ah, uh, lucky you. <laughs> Not necessarily if no one's listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The point yeah. is, yes. <laughs> first of all, there's really no point in pontificating. <laughs> but, there, but there is a, gr a big point in empowering staff to have their say. What I said earlier about celebrating emergent practices is all about empowering, especially junior staff, because often they come in with the best ideas and yeah. institutionally they may be silenced mm -hmm. yeah. because of the hierarchy and, and empowering them, giving them a voice, giving them a, a place where they can share, giving mm -hmm. them some sort of institutional validation is really important, as important as the student voice. And I think that's a lot, it's very relevant to what you were saying about uh, teaching and learning and communities practice and things being dynamic. You got power dynamics there in that case. You need to allow leadership to be porous in a sense, where it's dispersed amongst staff, young staff, newer staff, older staff, more experienced staff, and, and, and where we could all learn from each other. So considering all of this then, What's one of the key takeaways? Because this has been a fantastic conversation, and, and, and I don't know about you, Aditi, but I, I'm, I'm, I don't want it to end. But I, great insights. <laughs> but I, one of the key things I want to, well, one of the last things I'd like to ask myself is, what are the key takeaways for you? Uh, are there from the recent experience uh, in higher education in Hong Kong with regards to all of what we've been talking about, about power dynamics, about communities of practice? Uh, what are your key takeaways given our COVID-19 situation? Yes. Yeah. Times are changing, I think, would be the key takeaway for mm -hmm. me. And whatever the impetus for change, change is almost always a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, the current situation, in, well, the previous situation with protests and so on, you know, in many ways, unfortunate, the virus, very unfortunate, but something good can come out of it. And I, I, I believe it's, I mean, let's take, for example, the use of Zoom. Mm. Here we mm. are using Zoom. And all around us in everything from primary schools, my wife is a primary school teacher, uh, secondary schools and universities, people are now using Zoom. And okay, we accept that it's not perfect, but we have made a huge amount of progress in the use of Zoom over just a matter of a few weeks. Uh, so for me, the takeaway is change is good. We should embrace it. We should find the positive in it. We should have an open mind. Um, and we may surprise ourselves with the, res with the results. So I think that's a, a positive uh, uh, takeaway. Uh, and, it, and actually, I, I feel that my life, and I'm retiring next year, so I can talk about my life in some grandiose sense. But I feel that my life has been one succession, or, you know, a, a succession of things, one after the other, about mm. taking opportunities and trying to, trying to make the best of them. Nick. Nick. I don't think it's a takeaway yet because I don't think that uh, we're we're sort of in the middle of it, not at the end of it. So I, I don't really feel like a takeaway. But I, I think the 
the key the key thing right now is how do we leverage the opportunity we've been given right and we've actually been given a massive opportunity so i mean i know it's you know that sort of the old chinese saying out of adversity comes opportunity which is what it is it's how we when we have and it's how do we how do we sustain that in a little bit like we're talking about sustaining communities so how do we sustain where we've t- where we've got ourselves in the last few weeks how do we keep that momentum going because there's huge momentum now right departments are meeting online in zoom to discuss some of the things graham was mentioning before just like the you know the end of semester assessments and how do we change them and how do we deal with them but they're actually getting used to those sort of those communities are happening a lot more around teaching and learning than they ever were before at a scale that they were never happening with uh, at before too it was you know you sort of got the usual suspects of people coming in uh, to, to those sort of teach development sessions and all of a sudden that base is much broader so I think that the key thing for me is not a takeaway it's how do I keep the momentum going forward how do I maintain that momentum for all of these people who who've put in so much effort uh, mm-hmm. students and faculty alike uh, over the last few weeks one, one last thing from me would be to younger maybe less experienced academic staff members is to say this is your opportunity to make an important contribution to your institution you've never had a better opportunity to have your voice heard than Mm -hmm. right now Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. i i i would say this you should if you if you can see this as a catalyst for change and an opportunity for personal growth I think, uh, I think that's really important because there is, in this kind of event, inherently a, a threat. Hmm. But, but I, I really would say that we've never had such an opportunity to make a contribution to our institutions. These are very, very encouraging words, and we've spoken so much about teachers. And there's one burning question that I have because we, we, we barely managed to, you know, touch, touch or talk about students much. And and before we go, can I ask you about the idea of networked learning, and how do we? You mentioned before we are not creating enough online um, communities of practice for students. We are not getting them involved as students as partners as much as we can. So. As new teachers, as, as, as teachers who are not that experienced, what advice would you give us about network learning and the communities of practice that need to be formed for students as well? Uh, I think it's important to remember that uh, according to definitions of network learning, we're not only talking about uh, uh, technological in, uh, intervention in social processes, I, I, I think, uh, according to a sort of standard definition of network learning, we're also talking about connections within learning. Um, so, for example, interdisciplinarity right. is an element of network learning because it's to do with helping students to make connections between their, you know, a discipline, for example, another discipline, their own discipline and the world and so on. So I... I hesitate before talking about network learning as simply uh, technology intervening so as to create a network of yeah. learners yeah it's a lot i think that. is yeah. a, a kind of simplistic not simplistic but it's a, a a common view of network learning but i would prefer to take a sort of broader view on network learning and i think we are the universities have made considerable strides in terms of helping students to be network learners 
okay? Um, obviously, ubiquitous mobile uh, technology allows them to be virtual learners uh, as well. Um, but, uh, but I would say in terms of interdisciplinarity, we're well on our way to saying that our students are networked mm. learners. Mm -hmm. uh, Nick, you're the expert on technology enhanced network learning. <laughs> Am I? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, I think your, the question though that you, you said Aditi was about how could we help, you know, sort of, sort of create communities for students. And I don't think we do that. I think we need to do what Graham was suggesting, first of all, is that we bring the students into our collective communities together, right? When we talked about developing curricula and stuff like that. And from those experiences, they will go out and create their own communities. I don't want to sort of force a community on a group of students, which is a bit like what it sounded like to me, but we need to bring them into what we're doing and then they will branch out from that and they will have their own ideas and something we never thought of and they'll be able to you know, stimulate us as well as to create their own communities, I think. I think those communities are already being formed. Uh, I've been hearing reports from faculties that students under these Zoom conditions have already started creating their own networks, wow. which they then have as uh, virtual seminars or virtual tutorials or virtual uh, small group meetings. Uh, I would welcome that, but I don't really have any role in brokering those. I think that's what Nick is, is saying. Oh, fantastic. Thank you both. Uh, this has been a very interesting uh, conversation, uh, very deep, I think, uh, and meaningful for a lot of people, both uh, uh, people who are expert and, and experienced in, 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 in teaching, but also for those who are new. Um, Aditi. Uh, now, I got to learn a lot, and I'm excited about this new direction, networked um, network learning, networked uh, teaching, um, and I want to see how we can involve students more. And perhaps at a future date, if you could come back and talk to us about network learning and students as partners, that would be great. But for today, we'll stop here, and we'd really like to thank both Graham and Nick for being with us here today. Thank you for inviting uh, us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for thank inviting you. us. It's actually been very enjoyable. Thanks. We'd like to thank you again for joining us here at The Teacher's Lift. It's been a pleasure to create this episode, and we hope you've enjoyed listening. If you have enjoyed listening, I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to our podcast. If you'd like to make sure other teachers find this content, be sure to like our page on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or whatever other social media you've got. All the links are at teacherslift.com. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you again next time. Until then... A word to all my teacher friends out there, keep lifting, we'll get through this.